This is Stop Sucking at Business, episode 33. It's time to grow your business, stop spinning your wheels, and build the life you deserve. And I'm here to help. My name is Megan Brain. This is Stop Sucking at Business. Hello. Welcome to the show. Do you know who I am already? You probably do. If not, if you're just joining me for the first time ever, my name is Megan Brame. I'm an award-winning entrepreneur. I'm here to help you succeed in your small business. So thank you for joining me, whether you're new, old, all of the in between. And as I said it last week, I was like, is this really true? And it is really true. I'm talking with one of my oldest business friends and not she's old or not that she's whatever, but that she and I started our businesses at pretty much the same time. And I've known her for so long and I've been able to watch her grow. And her business is just like, it's just bananas how amazing she's doing. I definitely recommend kind of stalking her online a little bit because her behind the scenes pictures are just so funny. She has this picture of her in one of her soap melters. And she, Anne, Anne Dardick of Dot and Lil is who I'm talking to and who I'm talking about right now. And it's just so funny because she's so tiny and this soap melter is so big. And so she's just come a long way and I'm so proud of her. And that's why I wanted to have Anne on the podcast because I wanted her to talk about all of the different ways that she has become successful and we talk a lot about wholesale and trade shows and finding your customer and figuring out how to tailor your product to your customer. And fun fact, Anne is in Montreal. So she comes down here to the States for trade shows. And so I wanted to talk to her a little bit about just the mindset of thinking about, you know, selling to other countries and all of the ins and outs on that. And we touch a little bit about that, but we mostly talk about her wholesale strategy, her customer marketing strategy, and Facebook ads, which is super interesting to me and something that I'm always trying to learn more about. So that's why we get into that. And I hope that you like this conversation because Anna is such a sweet person and so fun and you should definitely check her out. So here is my interview with Ann Dardick of Dot and Lil. All right, Ann, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So can we just do a quick background of how Dot and Lil started and, um, you know, just your origin story, like you're an ex-band or something? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, I started the business eight years ago with my sister, uh, who really did not stick around for long. She was sort of around for the origin story part. And then uh, when that was done, she took off and went to live in California. So <laughs> she she no longer uh, works with me, but she still very much uses our product um, and she now runs a separate small business. Um, so we started it because we'd been making products for ourselves. We make skincare products and uh, home goods. So we'd been making stuff for ourselves for a little while. We grew up in 
in a house where everything is handmade. So from like the ketchup to like, I I did not eat a processed food until I was like old enough to (laughs) buy it myself, (laughs) basically. So that that's how we started making them for ourselves. And then we decided at a certain point uh, to start selling them. And for me, right away, I decided that that was something I wanted to turn into a career. And for my sister, I think it was always another one of the sort of handmade projects we'd had, like all the others, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then she left and went on to to future handmade product projects. And uh, I, I stuck doggedly with this one and refused to let go. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and then can you talk about just really quickly how you decided to um, expand into like Clark and James? Yes. So uh, we have a men's line called Clark and James Grooming Co. that we launched in 2014. Uh, some of those product, products, like the shaving soap, we had had available uh, since like 2009, I think, uh, but under our main brand, which is Dot & Lil. The thing about that is that our branding and just even the name of the company uh, are very feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously selling shaving products under a very feminine brand Although they are like they are a great unisex product, I love our shaving soaps. I use them, uh, but certainly that was a little bit less successful in terms of being able to market to men. Mm-hmm. Um, and right about 2014, there started to really be a lot more men's offerings around, and we decided it was a sort of a wasted uh, opportunity to have it sort of sitting in our dot and little line and not be able to market it properly. So we spun it off into a separate brand called Clark and James that we still do all the production and design for, but that has a separate website and its own sort of distinct personality. I think that a lot of people just myself included in this would see the men's market and think like, Oh my God, I gotta, I gotta adapt my brand. And so I love that you had the discipline to say, no, we're just going to branch this part off and have it as a separate entity. Do you ever struggle with things like that of like, oh, I just, I, I want to tweak the branding. Or are you like, nope, this is the branding. And this is you know, it's funny. Like I see, so yes, of course, like there are many sort of, I don't know exactly what something should look like. Like there are certain branding things that we struggle with, but generally I think because I, I have like a very clear idea of who are who our customer is. And I think also in a lot of ways, our customer is a lot like me or Dom little customer. <laughs> so that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's usually pretty clear to me, uh, you know, when something doesn't quite work. So, and especially for the men's stuff, you know, it started to be right around that time in like 2013, 2014, it started to actually be a separate client, like because we mainly wholesale. So we sell directly to consumer, but we also do a lot of selling to stores. Mm -hmm. Um, There started to be so many more stores where they weren't unisex gift stores. They weren't, you know, mainly targeted towards women. It started to really actually be a separate customer. And it started to be clear that like that customer had different needs than our dot and little customer. And because I know, you know, what our dot and little customer looks like and how they think and et cetera, um, you know, it was pretty clear that it was either we give up men's products or it becomes a separate identity. And then also at the same time, right around then I had met, I'd been mulling this idea over for a little while. And then right around then I met my boyfriend, Alex, and he ended up being sort of like the prototype guy for this <laughs> men's line. Um, so, and he still, he still gets to, you know, try, try them all out. He's the guinea pig at home, but uh, he travels a lot uh, and he's really, really picky about branding and sort of the look of the stuff he will buy. And 
you know, telling him, yeah, yeah, there's a shaving soap in the dot and low line. Like it just wasn't going to work. Like right, it was right. not, he might've used it because I would have, you know, brought it home and he would have been like, oh, right. I guess that's, you know, what's in the bathroom. But like he was, he, he cared about what he was using and he wouldn't have bought the, the, the shaving soap that we were making. So it, it just like sort of crystallized all this stuff I'd already been thinking about where it was like, okay, well, so the customer is starting to look different. And I guess this is what the customer looks like. And he just sort of appeared <laughs> right at that moment. <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> well, I love uh, I, just the thought of consciously um, selling to someone. You know, a lot of businesses and getting into business teaches you you want to have this avatar and you want to create like – you know, basically like create an imaginary friend, like what's her background, what's her blah, 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 what's her blah, blah, blah. Yes. And so and that, I, that... and I don't always like do a really good job about making that more official and communicating it properly <laughs> to others, uh, for sure. And, uh, I need to get better at that. But I do think that like, especially, you know, I, I, there was someone we have a, for the first time ever this past year, we set up like an actual little showroom in our studio. So you know, clients can just sort of walk in most times where we really only have opening hours once a week, but sometimes people do knock on the door and we are for the first time ever sort of set up to be able to speak to people. And I had a, a, a designer come in today, earlier today and be like, yeah, and I, you know, we just redid this bathroom and I'm looking for something really like modern and, you know, not, not too vintage looking. And I was like, well, you are in the wrong place, <laughs> like, you know, for stuff like that. Our, our branding is very clearly like the second you look at it, like if vintage is not for you, then this, this just isn't going to work. <laughs> like, so he, he did end up, he, you know, he picked some soaps and I think with skincare, especially what happens is because it's such a classic gift item, people are like, Oh, well you can, you can sell this to anybody. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really turn out to be true. Once you get sort of more into what people will buy more than one time or what they will actually sort of be really excited about, which as a small business, if you can't get people excited about stuff, uh, that's a big problem. So what do you think came first then the, the client profile or the product? Like, did you create the products first and then you just kind of saw like, Oh, these people are really into it. So I'm going to focus towards them. Or was it, I know who I, I have a general idea of who I want to sell to, and this is how I'm going to reach them. Um, or a little bit of I both? I guess it's probably a bit of both. So uh, in terms of like the vintage inspiration, so the from the beginning, like from the naming of the company, so the company is called Dot and Lil because it's named after Dorothy and Lillian Gish, who mm -hmm. were movie star sisters who made silent films. So right from there, right from that moment, uh, it's clear that there's like a vintage inspiration to the line, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the fact, because they were sisters, we we were really looking for uh, sisters. And then obviously we wanted it to be a nice name too. Like it was fine to find sort of vintage inspired sisters, but we, did, we also <laughs> wanted it to be like a nice sounding business name. Right. So that took, that was a little bit of work, but, um, so like right from there, I think it's clear that like, we knew that that's what we wanted the products to look like. And that's the aesthetic that was, you know, attractive to us at the time. And then what's really funny is that, so that was 2008 um, and you know, vintage has since become this like massive trend and I find it really <laughs> interesting. And everything, yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think what's really interesting is like people, you know, get really concentrated on one era. Um, but you know, things that are older and, and, uh, sort of 
simplicity and nostalgia inspired like there's an endless supply of eras to pick from like so I, I'm not concerned about like you know that that no longer being a trend and us being like oh no what's our brand like like I think that it will be like I can see there being like a really interesting evolution in that that will continue to be interesting and and uh, contemporary so talk to me about wholesale uh, you know you and I met on a soap making forum which when you say 2008 I'm like oh my god yes oh my god (laughs) yeah 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 2008 forum forum time Uh, (laughs) um so yeah so I so originally when my sister and I started we really started with what was most uh familiar to us which was you know we were making a handmade product at that point on a very small scale right (laughs) um and uh and so we started doing uh like small local handmade shows Mm -hmm. um and and actually right around then um that that whole scene started to really grow so there's still a few shows like that that we'll do we do very few of them now because it's not really the model anymore Mm -hmm. but in terms of like local advertising there's really very little that's better in the sense that you're standing there in front of your target customer and getting their immediate reaction. Literal market research. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fantastic. Um, so I still enjoy doing that. I just like, basically we cut it down to like the, the key essential ones where we know that our customers will be there. Um, and I don't really try a lot of new retail shows like that, Mm -hmm. uh, unless I know that they're sort of a sure, sure bet. Um, what do you think made you want to want to say like, I want to focus exclusively on wholesale? Or not exclusively, um, but you know, ninety yeah. percent. Well, it's it is it is relatively exclusively because so we do a couple of retail shows a year. Like I don't know, I think maybe three, uh, three retail shows a year where we're selling directly to consumer, and then really the rest of it is wholesale. Except that we do sell from our website, mm-hmm. but again, that is not a huge portion of what we do. Like the majority of what we do is try to um, get new retailers excited about, uh, about our products. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we do market directly to their customers. So it's great if like a customer can walk into a gift shop and their local gift shop where they know the owner and be like, we really want to buy these products. So that's important too. Um, but I think, so early on I did, I did get some advice from a mentor who was basically like, if you ever want this to be bigger than you, like if you ever want this, like if you want this to be you doing a few craft shows, that that is great. If what you want is something that is larger than that and larger than yourself, then you really need to think about how it's scalable and you really need to think about how it could potentially be saleable. So like, for example, if your model is to do retail shows and when I do retail shows, I meet people whose entire business model is like they go you know, they, they run around, uh, the U S and Canada doing retail show after retail show. And that's, that's their business, right? Like you've met these people too, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I always find that fascinating. And I, I, I wish I had their patience, patience for packing up boxes and unpacking (laughs) them again. (laughs) I I just want to know what kind of car they have because it just seems crazy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But so that it became clear to me relatively quickly that that I, that I didn't want that to be the case. Um, but also the problem with a business like that, if you do want it to be something that is larger than yourself, is it's very, very hard to um, to exit from or sell a business like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what you are, in fact, selling, like your distribution model is your presence at the show. Right. Right. And that is not 
property. So you can't, you don't own that. You can, you do with certain kinds of shows, like some kinds of shows, you know, you, you get juried in one time and you're in there forever. <laughs> you just, you, you, you can continue doing it every single year. The issue is that that show could change. You really don't own that distribution, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, so I think once I understood that and I started working with a couple of stores just locally, actually from doing little shows, right? People would just come up and be like, hey, I have a shop. Can I, can I put your products in it? Um, and especially in 2008, like there were, there were handmade skincare brands, but compared to what there is now, like this oh, is totally. a totally different, uh, different time mm-hmm. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. So, um, so definitely just, there was a certain amount of organic reach that occurred where store owners would get in touch and want to carry the product. And once I started realizing that that meant, uh, sort of repeat business and that that meant that, uh, yes, your margin is much, much smaller, right? Cause you're giving, um, a discount from your retail price. Um, I never had a huge problem with that. I know for a lot of people who make handmade products, that leap to like the, the big, the big discount for wholesale mm-hmm. is tough. The thing is that I guess because I, maybe it's, it's harder on people who have higher price point items, but like if you're selling bar soaps and they're $7 a piece, you might make a better margin at $7 than at three fifty. But oh man, does it take a lot of $7 soaps sold to one person to make Mm $1,000. So I think because it's a low price point item, like I think, you know, if you're a jeweler and you can sell one piece for two or $300, then maybe it's less interesting to go into wholesale and give that discount. But if you're selling, you know, a consumable low price point item, wholesale kind of has to be where it is at because otherwise you just you're gonna like you you just you have to it's too much uh too many clients to to make a significant amount of money um and I know there are brands that do it but I guess for me it just started to make sense to have um you know to to be a business to business business that's too many too many (laughs) times the same word but you you understand what I mean Um, absolutely I love I love that you say that too like you you need to go into this with the end in mind, right? And I know that everybody wants sunshine and puppies about like, this is my baby and I will love it forever. But your baby's going to go away. Your baby's going to go to college or you're going to get yeah, old. And, and it, what do you want to totally, do? It totally is my baby. And I, and in fact, you know, I say this about like planning it from the beginning as if, you know, as if I was going to exit or sell the business. And in fact, I, it's not that I have specific plans for that. Like I am not one of these people who got, who got into business to get out of business. It's more like, like what if something happened to me? Like, especially so like now I don't work on my own anymore, but especially in the beginning when I was doing every step, like what, you know, I think, so my mentor at the time, I think called it hit by a bus syndrome. So like, what do we do if Anne gets hit by a bus? (laughs) Like, where does, where does the business go? And so that I think really helps you figure out like, okay, so it should on a, at least, I mean, even now, like if I got hit by a bus, believe me, there would be problems like <laughs> in this business. Like things would not just like chug along like wonderfully, but you know, there would be like, there, there is at least a structure in place and a system in place um, that would allow it to, to work without me. And that is the bones of a business that you can, if necessary, 
sell. If it can't function without you, then it can never be sold. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know if you've read the book E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Oh, yeah. But that book like blew my mind and I've read it like four times ever since then. And it's actually so like I'm I my parents run a um, a publishing company. So like we're also a very literary family in another (laughs) another branch. And like that book is horrible because it's terribly written. And I had like massive problems. (laughs) Um, It's it's quite badly written and it's like extremely cheesy. But the the nugget of like what it is trying to say was like good enough that like I'm willing to put up with the horrible book. So that that says a lot. That's that's how I feel. I I mean the four hour work week is my, oh yes <laughs> that like I I can't even talk about it. It's just it's my bible. Uh, yes. You know? The thing I think the thing that bothers me about that one is that Tim Ferriss is like. It, it, I just find it to be misrepresentation because this man works like 18 hours a day. <laughs> so I his think podcasts he, I, and his, and his books. Exactly. And his blah, blah, blah. He doesn't, um, he, 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 I think he's in fact kind of trying to say the same thing as, as Emith, which is if it doesn't, if it's not possible for it to function without you, then there's sort of a, a basic flaw in the way that it's being conceived Mm -hmm. but I don't think he intended for it to be sort of like uh make money while sitting on a beach really um and I think unfortunately a lot of people who do feel that way about it have gotten hold of it I remember going on a terrible date where this man was like yeah and my life plan is just to become Tim Ferriss and like not do anything and I was like that is not Tim Ferriss (laughs) (laughs) and also this date is never gonna work (laughs) like this is not going anywhere Mm -hmm. like oh you actually have no idea what you're talking about you just you just read some Amazon review about that book and yeah yeah. And mm-hmm. so this idea of like, I'm going to systemize everything and then, you know, relax for the rest of my life. Right. I just think on a basic level, it's not what most entrepreneurs are about. So no. I love it though for, and obviously this isn't about Tim Ferriss, but yes, I love, I love that he puts it in your mind and Emith too, that um, you don't have to be everything and you really shouldn't be everything. And if there are ways to get like, stop checking your email all the time. Stop, you know, like you're wasting your time when you should be, when you could be doing what all like the angel investing and the podcasts and all the things that he does, like all of the, yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. So going back to this, uh, going back to the model, what do you think, you know, the big thing right now is to have a face that represents the company and be like, you you are Dot and Lil, and I, I'm accessible, and I'm reachable, and I'm a person, and blah, blah, blah. How do you balance that with a model where you don't want to be, don't want to have it attached to you fully? Do you know what I mean? So, like, if you yeah. could want to sell it, how do you balance that? Well, okay. So, for the moment, I totally am the face. Like, I don't know if you follow Dot and Lil on Snapchat, but, like, it is all me. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is all me. And actually, um, the, the, our main marketing strategy for the next couple of months and the past month or two is really to start veering way more heavily into video than we ever have before. So, uh, that will be increasingly the case because obviously I will, uh, be in, I would say 80% of these videos. (laughs) So that is for sure happening. Um, the, the thing that I think is important is that, there's not, so 
the more we go into video, yes, the more I will be in video, but also the more that I do video, the more I talk about the fact that we are a team, the more, the more I talk about the other people that I work with, mm-hmm. um, the more I actually explain, uh, I've been trying to do a better job at explaining who Dorothy and Lillian Gish are that the company is named after. Cause for a long time it, it was just a cute name and people didn't know, like we didn't do a great job at storytelling. Right. You like, know. Oh, are these your dogs? Or... Exactly. Yeah. Or like relatively regularly, I still get, um, I still get emails being like, hi, Dot. You're like, oh, okay, that's fine. You can just, that's, I'll just roll with that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I think that is an issue. I think with any small business, the main thing that people are looking for is for it to be human. So as much as people might connect to me in a video, what they're really connecting to, I think, uh, is the idea that there is a person sitting there that has not only, you know, has intimate information about how this product is created, but also, uh, uses it and is excited about talking to them about it. Mm -hmm. So I think if that's me or it's someone who, uh, who understands the brand really well and is also, you know, has a lot of product knowledge. Um, the thing with skincare is you can be a really good salesperson, but in fact, it does take quite a lot of not like a, a rather large, knowledge base to be able to answer people's questions about how to use the products. People have a lot of questions about skincare um, and the stuff they use in their bodies. So you, you have to be a generally good salesperson, but you also really have to know what you're talking about. Um, so as long as it was someone that knew what they were talking about, and I mean, if you hang around with me long enough, I'm going to bore your ear off about most skincare <laughs> stuff anyway. So like most of our staff is quite well informed at this point. Um, then I think that that can be translated to other people. And with like, so the, the few retail shows we do a year, as long as I have time to train people, like as long as it's not like I'm being replaced by, you know, someone who steps into our booth after like, you know, 10 minutes of, of right. hearing about the brand that I'm always less comfortable about because I know, I know, I know, I know that they're going to get questions that they don't know the answers to. And to me for a skincare brand, that's not acceptable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it comes down to making sure you have people working with you that are just as excited, um, and that, and that use the products. Um, not that I force staff to use the products, but we do have, <laughs> at this point we have enough products that like, even if there's something they don't use, like hopefully they, they are getting excited about something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think inevitably once, you know, our, like the, the, we, we are very open to ideas as well. So that at least that way they could design, design part of their own. And that way they, they would hopefully be excited enough about it to sell it to someone else. Well, this, this brings up two questions for me. And one is, um, something that you're probably the most expert expert I have for this. And that is, um, U S versus Canada. (laughs) (laughs) And two is kind of along those lines too, where, how do you train people to, uh, I, I don't want to say not lie, but that's essentially because you know that in the United States, and I'm quite sure in Canada because you guys are much more stringent, um, there's things that you can say that products can do and there's things you can absolutely not say what products yes. do. Yes, so like, we run a zero yeah. claim business. Beautiful. Like I am like really serious about this. Like we, we do not make claims. We make claims about quality. We mm-hmm. make claims about, you know, standing behind the ingredient choices we make. Like I don't mean we make no claims like, wow, it's a product, use it if you want. <laughs> right. Like not like that. Right. But like you will never hear 
someone who works for me, certainly not if they intend to keep working for me, say, you know, yeah, this will do great things for your eczema. Like that is never, that why? is never going to happen. <laughs> why is that, like, why was eczema in my head too? I guess that's just the question. That it's I a question that comes time. up a lot. Um, also, you know, questions about allergies. Is mm-hmm. this hypoallergenic is, you know, all of these questions. Um, I think basically I, I've seen sort of staff struggle with feeling uncomfortable answering a question when they feel like what they have to say is not the answer people are looking for. Mm -hmm. Like, so for example, is this hypoallergenic? The client is obviously looking for you to say yes, or they would not have asked the question. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you equip them with the knowledge to first, I mean, first of all, always be polite. Like I'm never, I also don't want them to be like, absolutely not. And let me force you to listen to why, (laughs) like that should also never happen. But I think if the, if, if staff has the uh, knowledge to understand for themselves, why it is that that question is problematic, Mm -hmm. um, which is that of course, uh, allergies vary wildly. uh, And that's not a specific claim. There are no non-allergenic uh, components. It is not possible to right. to create a hypoallergenic uh, product for all people. There so, are people that are allergic to air and water. Yes, you know, like it's, just, <laughs> it's not possible. Right. So I think if 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 the person answering the question uh, has the information and has been empowered to understand why the question itself is flawed, then most of the time, if they if they are you know relatively good with customer service, which is obviously what we try and put in front of clients, <laughs> um, <laughs> then they should be relatively comfortable to be like, oh well, actually that's really interesting because I used to think that was that was a thing too, and then I have been learning a lot about how people are allergic to so many different things that in fact we prefer to just say that we use you know, really mild ingredients and all of our ingredients are always marked on each of our products. Do you have any specific allergies you need us to help you find products for? Mm -hmm. So that really is the correct answer to that question, right? Which is that, hey, we want to give you a friendly piece of advice about why the question you're asking may not be the question that you actually need to be asking and let us talk about why. And a lot of the time it ends up being a lead into like a really interesting conversation where the person ends up feeling like they've developed some kind of connection to you. Uh, I used to really struggle with this because I used to want to give people way too much information. Mm -hmm. And I've had to really realize that like, so skincare might be, you know, what I like to think about all day, but mm-hmm. for most people, they're making a whole lot of other choices in their lives that are way more important, to be honest with you. And they want something that works for them and they want to feel like it's good and they want to feel like it's safe and they want to feel like they at least vaguely understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they don't want too much information. They want to be given the information that they need to feel good about it. And then they want to trust you to deal with the rest. I so, love that. And that, that spans across not just skincare, but, you know, yeah, like everything. It's, it's yeah. probably the way I feel when I'm buying like food, for example. Like I do not necessarily have the time to understand each individual mm-hmm. uh, issue. What I want is to hopefully be buying it from someone where I trust them to have made those decisions where like I have enough information about them and about what it is that they do to feel like I can trust them with the rest of those decisions. So yeah. And I mean, and I take that pretty seriously and it means that there are certain things um, that are, that are hard for us to do, right? Like we still mainly make anhydrous products, products that contain no water, um, because there's, uh, an issue with preservation. Mm -hmm. And it means that, 
sometimes I get asked questions where like, I know the person's not going to like the answer where like, is this, is this natural? And they don't, I can tell that they don't actually want to have a conversation. And so, you know, sometimes, sometimes it can go less well. To be honest with you, though, those people are not going to be our clients. They're mm-hmm. clearly not looking to have that kind of relationship with us. And if that's the case, then either they're going to go off and find someone who can answer that question differently, or they're going to, to be really honest, find someone who's going to lie to them. And so they are welcome to do that. And I, I am happy to deal with clients that are probably less likely to be very difficult further down the road. Well, you always you want the people that you want and you want to it's it's all about pushing pushing people out that you don't want and pulling people in that you do want right so it's never and I I want people to be happy with what it is that they buy from us and the service that they get so if that doesn't seem like it's going to be possible then I'm just going to be really polite and you know wait for it to be over (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I did I worked uh, for many years as a waitress before I started uh, my own Mm. business so dealing with difficult people uh, is like (laughs) basically second nature to me and then I worked in childcare, so really basically my entire uh, preparation for for dealing with customer service is you know you want people to be happy but sometimes it is what it is and that's true in both restaurants and childcare. All you need to do is be a bridal consultant and you'll just have the trifecta of difficult yes. people. Well, we did actually just start um, marketing uh, products specifically for weddings. So we have these customizable candles now that you can customize with uh, the names of, of a couple or the date of your event or both. Um, so yeah, we are, we are dealing with more and more brides and, and so far we've been really, really lucky, but I know for sure that eventually we're going to get a bridezilla situation (laughs) for sure. Um, so I was talking about United States. Uh, have you done retail in the United States or just the trade shows? Uh, we only, the only way in which we retail into the United States is through our website. Okay. Um, and that's partially because even if I wanted to do, like I've thought of applying to things like Renegade and et cetera, mm-hmm. um, but actually getting over the border with retail stock is quite complicated because you're selling it within the United States, as opposed to when I sell online, it's actually sold in Canada and then shipped to its uh, destination. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like probably with the amount of uh, hassle required, it's not worth it. So we've never tried. So for the trade shows and when you're doing wholesale, what are some things that people should keep in mind when uh, going, you know, United States versus United States to Canada or vice versa? Um, well, uh, pretty much they shouldn't do, uh, trade shows in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) I can, I can pretty much sum that. I mean, within my category anyway, Mm -hmm. I don't know about, you know, that's maybe not true for all business, uh, sectors. Um, certainly if they're doing anything, uh, relating to gift, um, there's very few. So the thing is the pop, like Canada is very large, but we have a population under 33 million people. Like we are a very small place in terms of market. Um, so uh, understandably, with sort of the changes in the gift industry in the past couple of years, um, there are far fewer rep groups here in Canada. Uh, there's far fewer gift retailers, to be honest with you. And uh, as much as we love our Canadian retailers, and we will always be happy to work with Canadian retail, um, there's a point at which I sort of looked around at the landscape and was like, all right, well, we're going to develop U.S. wholesale business or we're going to not be wholesalers anymore mm-hmm. um, because that just wasn't going to be it's just not a viable uh, thing. I have heard in the past couple of years 
that the uh, Toronto gift show, which we used to do uh, with uh, our, we used to have reps in Canada um, and they used to do that show. And it is like, that is, if you're looking for a, a, a gift trade show in Canada, the largest one is the CGTA show out of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of the equivalent of the New York gift show, but the Canadian version. And that one apparently has actually had a little bit of a resurgence Really honestly with you, dollar for dollar, if you're going to spend marketing and trade show dollars in one place versus the other, I mean, California alone has a larger population than all of Canada. (laughs) So you're really better off uh, marketing into the United States, except that also, you know, without spending a lot of money, I can target those Canadian retailers that I am happy to work with, right? Mm -hmm. So like I can look up a store across the country and be like, hey, we're a Canadian brand. I would love to send you some samples. Right. And I can do that pretty much as many times as I want. It's still going to be cheaper than going to a trade <laughs> show. So I'm not saying don't market to them. I'm just saying in terms of like, you know, uh, expensive booths, uh, you're really better off focusing in a place where there's a bigger market and you're going to meet more buyers. So how, what do you recommend a small, like a small Canadian maker, like, like let's say they're doing uh, stationery? And they want to start looking into wholesaling in the United States. What do you kind of what tips do you have for them? Um, if they're stationary, they should definitely do the National Stationery Show mm-hmm. uh, in New York. That being said, uh, I've done that show because because there is a lot of uh, there's like a not a, there's actually not a lot of but there is some gift product offering at that show, mm-hmm. um, and so it works really well for me. But that's because. Uh, in fact, there's not not as much competition for a product like mine at that show. Mm-hmm. If you are a paper goods company um, and you want to do the National Stationery Show, it's still a small enough show that I think you can uh, have an impact. But you really, really have to uh, work a little bit harder at, let's say, the booth and at setting yourself apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would do a huge amount of pre-show marketing specifically for that show, specifically if you're selling paper goods, uh, because uh, the the competition, uh, let me assure you, is sending out uh, paper good mailers that really show off their line uh, before the show even occurs. Oh, just so, searching that on Instagram, it's like, yeah, oh my god! It's really, it's 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 wonderful and it's gorgeous, but like, you know, that that's it, it's a whole other realm. I doing that show, you know, people were almost refreshed, like, oh, look, like, because most people who have stores that sell paper goods also sell some sort of gift item. Right. Um, and so, you know, at a certain point, they'd be like, oh, look, candles like this. That was it was like a welcome break. Right. <laughs> they had been looking at greeting cards for like the past four hours mm-hmm. and then they would fall on our booth. This year, we actually didn't do that show uh, for the first time in two, two or three years. Um, I usually have um, a free place to stay in New York City, and I did not this time. And it just tipped it just over that edge <laughs> where I decided that for this spring it didn't quite make uh, make any sense. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I don't. You obviously don't pay as close attention to the uh, U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar exchange rate as I do, but it has been brutal. So uh, it, it was just not going to work for this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll probably be back. Makes sense. I, yeah. I get that. Um, so just trying to think of like, I'm a new Canadian company and I'm thinking about doing a trade show over the United States. Um, brokers or like, do I just take everything in a suitcase or is that kind of wow. like, uh, you can't talk about that. <laughs> 
You so basically, uh, we now store our booth in the United States. So I started doing enough shows per year that the shipping back and forth was not worth it anymore. And Mm -hmm. that's actually true whether you're in Canada or in the U.S. If you live, you know, in Wisconsin and you're doing three shows a year in New York City, you definitely should not be shipping your stuff back and forth every time. Mm -hmm. Um, There's uh, a bunch of different companies that offer it. We work with a company called Showtime. Um, They store our, our pallet with our booth on it. Um, I, now it's two pallets because my, uh, I, I sometimes for certain shows share booth space with, uh, another company, mm-hmm. uh, always, always the same company. And we've now split our booth onto two pallets so that if we need to do separate shows, we're still good, good to go without having right. to ship everything. <laughs> um, but, uh, so basically they store our two pallets with our booth on them, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, it costs us $20 per pallet per month. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is extremely reasonable, like really, really reasonable Absolutely. compared to what we were paying in shipping. Um, and it also, the the other benefit is that not only does it avoid the cost of uh, freight, but it also actually avoids really bad things happening. <laughs> and so it's much less stressful before the show because you know that your booth is going to be sitting there waiting for you. It has not been shipped from far away. You You have only one company to deal with. You're not like, you know, on the phone with UPS, like in tears because right. your, your booth is not, has not arrived. I did not make that up. That's a real life experience uh, that did in fact happen to, to me. Oh my God. But, um, so it, it is just a lot less, uh, you know, it's a lot less risky to know exactly where it is and exactly where it's coming from and, and to have them just take care of it from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, so they charge us $20 a month per pallet and then they charge us per pound for the move between New Jersey and New York city. And mm-hmm. it's really affordable. I think our pallet, which weighs like a, a lot, right. I think it ends up costing us like $150, uh, return from New Jersey to the trade show. So, so that's all, in, all in all, you're like 400 bucks a month, which like you said, I'm sure the shipping to and from would just be that or higher. Uh, well, so it's, it's, uh, it's 150 per show, right? Mm-hmm. If, if the show is in New York city and then it's $20 a month. So like, yeah, like a year. So I think one, uh, return shipping to a trade show. I mean, it was costing us, I think just under a thousand dollars. Oh my God. So like the, and it's less stressful. So like I, you know, do one show just to see if it's going to work for you. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you can like book it into something where you know that it's there, it's staying there. Um, it means that I can do a show on a whim, right? Like I can be like, well, not a whim, that's a slight <laughs> exaggeration, <laughs> but like I can be like, Oh, Hey, I didn't know about this trade show in this city, but it's in, you know, three weeks or a month. And I know I don't have to build a pallet, build a display and ship it there. The display lives in the United States mm-hmm. and is ready to go at all times. Um, so that has made a big difference. It kind of only makes sense if you're going to do more than one show a year. Um, but I, I highly recommend it. Um, the other thing that we started doing is, uh, uh, temporary walls. So we build our walls out of foam core mm-hmm. and then, uh, throw them away at the end of the show, which kills the environmental <laughs> side of my being. But, um, compared to actually shipping hard walls around the country mm-hmm. is probably environmentally not so bad. Uh, so I had, I had, it's a bit of a tough call. I had actual walls like me and my friend Jared built them 
And, I know. Oh, I, I seem to remember dude, that I attempted oh. to buy those walls from you. Oh, that's at some right. Point. And I already <laughs> trashed them. Oh my god, that's right. And yeah, I think that the foam core, especially if you're not trying to hang stuff or you're not sure you know it just it makes so much more sense well oh. here's the crazy thing you actually can hang stuff you oh, don't really think you wouldn't think you'd be able to um but we actually put up shelves in our foam core really? um they're little shelves they're like two inches deep and you can't put like a lot of stuff on them <laughs> but you know i probably have like over five or six pounds of stuff that sits on those shelves oh interesting the key is that they really only have to stay up for four days right (laughs) (laughs) so you know as long as no one tries to lean on them Mm -hmm. then you're probably good (laughs) i love that yeah that's so smart i wish i'd known that oh (laughs) oh well uh so we're getting towards the end but there is one thing that i really wanted to talk to you about and that is your experience with facebook ads you know so many people are um teaching that you know use the ads as to get people on your mailing list and then you take them into sales funnel blah blah and you cut out that middleman you just have facebook ads that go to your products and your website right Yes. Well, we, we definitely do both. Um, I have found that it really depends, um, what it is that we're marketing. Um, so for example, for some of our stuff that I know has a lot of visual impact or that people tend to buy the first time they see it, um, we do now have not at all times, but at various times ads that go directly to the product page. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, mainly that happens with our bath milks. Uh, and also with our teacup candles. So we have like a little teacup candle that we make in a vintage cup. And that one uh, tends to have better click-through rates and just marketing reaction in general on any platform than most of the other things that we make because they are very visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think because there's a certain demand for the product, obviously that, that part also has to be true. But it's, it's, a, it's a very nice-looking object, so that helps a lot. Um, so for stuff like that, I will do ads that go directly to the product page. But in fact, most of the ads that you may have seen uh, they're either, either they are remarketing ads where we are targeting them at people who have already been to our website, in which case you definitely want it to go to the website and not to a lead magnet or any kind of other content because they've already, they've already been through that scenario. Most likely they already have some idea of who you are. You really at that point are sort of like the equivalent of poking them and being like, Hey, we exist, (laughs) right? We exist. And this product is still sitting here. We still have it. It's just waiting for you. So in that case, you definitely want it to go directly to the product page. Um, when, when I've tried, and like as with Facebook advertising always, like we definitely do stuff that does not work. Like mm-hmm. I have definitely spent some money on Facebook advertising <laughs> that went nowhere. Um, but so when I've tried that with sort of any old product, uh, much less successful. Also interesting because of the question you asked me earlier with differences between Canada and the US, um, I really find that the click-through for ads targeted to the U.S. is lower across the board. And I am sure that, that that there are two main reasons for that. The first one is that when we market in Canada, we market ourselves specifically as a Canadian company for mm-hmm. various reasons because it makes people feel warm and fuzzy about buying from us, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, as it should. Yes. But also, um, secondary to that is uh, I believe that most likely – Americans are more heavily marketed to. Um, so you're just breaking through more of a barrier. 
Um, and that becomes really obvious in a, in a few different marketing contexts, like our email list. Uh, we have, uh, we don't segment necessarily by country. It depends where we're getting the sign up from. I don't always know that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do segment by language because, uh, we are from Montreal. So we're, we, we're in a French speaking province. So dealing with, um, language content is really complicated <laughs> and really interesting, but really complicated. Um, so do in you terms use of MailChimp? Our, we do use MailChimp. Yep. Yeah. So for, um, for our French language, uh, email list, our open rates are consistently, consistently much higher. Our click through rate is higher and our conversion rate is higher. And again, that's because we're from here, right. but actually mainly it's because less people are marketing to them because there's a language barrier for a lot of businesses. Well, and I so, think that goes even with, that's just niching, right? Like niching down and. Well, yeah. So there's basically even just that built in niche of, you know, them speaking a language that the rest of North America does not speak <laughs> uh, means that we have a lot of success. Like, and that's true for Facebook ads uh, as well. When, when we do a French language Facebook ad targeted um, you know, to, to people from our province, but also people across Canada whose, uh, mother tongue is French. Mm -hmm. The conversion rate is higher. It just is Mm -hmm. because there, there, there's not as many people speaking to them. So, uh, in that way, it is a lot easier to lose money marketing in the States because it's easier to sort of find a niche that is over overly targeted and it just, you know, it just, your money just disappears. Right. You're just white noise. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, it's nice when there's enough people to market to properly. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that's true. And then my other main point of frustration, uh, and, and then I will stop talking about being Canadian. It's not, it's really not the salient (laughs) fact about me. I promise. Um, the other thing that I find really, really uh, unfortunate is that um, we are, I am very active on Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because it's a platform that I really enjoy. But it also really happens to be where our customer hangs out uh, a lot of the time, I think, and where our customer goes looking for new ideas and especially home goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you may not know this, but Pinterest's advertising product, which everyone seems to rave about and love so much, is only open to U.S.-based businesses. So even heard, with an American bank account, like we... I heard they like just we, opened it. They didn't open it globally? I thought I heard they just did that. I keep hearing that they're about to, uh, but oh, okay. as far as I know, it's still uh, still closed outside of the U.S. And so what I find especially annoying about that is like we, because we wholesale a lot into the U.S., like we have a we have a bunch of uh, retailers that buy from us from in the U.S. You know, we ship from the United States. Uh, we have an American bank account. Like, for all intents and purposes, we function uh, from the client's perspective like a U.S.-based business. Mm-hmm. They, they can buy in U.S. dollars. Uh, they, you know, every, everything it, for them is as if we were based in Champlain, New York. Uh, and Pinterest still won't let me, they will not take my money, Megan. (laughs) So I'm, I am just really waiting for that because I think that will be a very, very good platform for us because we, we do a lot of, uh, visual content creation, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and our customer is already on Pinterest and, uh, we have, some traction there. So I really think that once I can get some promoted pins in there, that will be a a great piece of the puzzle. Is Instagram good for you? Um, Instagram, 
Uh, you mean in terms of the advertising project? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, I mean, it's okay. Basically, at this point, I have done very little that is targeted at Instagram. Mm-hmm. I mainly, I think, like other people, once it opened up, started allowing my Facebook ads to also be pushed to that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it a little bit harder to understand the uh, data around what is happening uh, in terms of interaction with uh, the promoted content on Instagram. Like I find within the Facebook ads platform, there is much more clear data available segmented by other, uh, other, uh, platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find what they provide for Instagram, not particularly helpful in determining, uh, and this may just be me that has not, you know, spent enough time, you know, banging my head against a wall <laughs> with it, which tends to be how you get ahead with Facebook advertising. <laughs> um, I, I haven't found that it's very clear on exactly what I should be tweaking in order to optimize my results for Instagram. Um, we do, like, I find people who are already customers of ours, they uh, tend to like consuming information from us on Instagram more than on Facebook. And Hmm. definitely I find the engagement rate higher, but again, that's most, that's very likely to be algorithm related. And so So that, that will probably disappear. It's so (laughs) difficult too, just with Instagram with, you know, there's nothing that's entirely linkable except the link on your profile, you know, so that's just one extra step. Uh, So when you're saying like these metrics, that makes total sense because you can't really see who's clicking. Yeah. Well, and I find even they're, they're not, um, like last time I checked, which to be honest was probably a couple of months ago, they weren't even super clear. Like there wasn't really a way of segmenting, Mm. uh, who had seen it where and when, which you can do with all of your other Facebook related advertising. Mm -hmm. Um, but Facebook is usually actually pretty good at figuring out where there's a pain point and developing further, uh, like developing the product, their ad product further to respond to those needs. So mm-hmm. maybe it's on its way, you know, I mean, it's been what, like a year or something, uh, maybe less that Instagram has been open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, it very possibly is just taking them some time to figure out how to make that work. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are at the end and we actually went over. So you are my first extra credit project. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Uh, dotandlil.com is a really good place. <laughs> Dot and Lil on every single uh, social media platform you can think of, including Snapchat, where I'm doing more and more content than, than before. Excellent. Well, and thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Guys, I love her. She's so fun. She's so amazing, and it's not just because I know that she listens to this podcast, but since you're listening anyways, Anne, I love you. You are my favorite, and I wish you all the best, and I hope that everybody else listening goes and checks you out on Snapchat or on her website or out anywhere in the internet world. Her stuff's amazing. She's amazing. Definitely check her out. In the meantime, next week, I can't wait. I can't wait because I'm going to give you exclusive access to an interview that Laura Fisk did 
with me. She actually interviewed me for this series that launches tomorrow. It's my first mentor series, and it's all about the ins and the outs of craft shows. The whole series launches tomorrow. You can get it at meganbrame.com slash mentor. But in the meantime, can you do me a favor? Can you rate this on iTunes? That would be so helpful, and I'd really appreciate it because it helps other people find out about the podcast, and that would just be amazing, right? Let's help as many people as we can. So subscribe, rate this on iTunes if you're into it. If you're not, no worries. But I will talk to you next week. Have a fantastic week. I hope you kill it.